This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi. Bonjour. Hola. We are Distractions Media, your favorite place for podcasts, videos, streams, and tabletop role-playing games. It's time once again for our annual 24-hour charity live stream, and this year we are raising money for Extra Life. Extra Life is a charity that raises funds for sick children who are in hospitals. Helping to provide needed treatments, medication, and even entertainment. It's so important to help those who are most precious. More information about Extra Life can be found at extra-life.org. So how can you help? We're glad you asked. On Saturday, December 7th at noon Eastern. Join us and help us meet our goal of raising $1,000 for this fantastic cause. We have some fun events planned for all of our viewers and some giveaways. So won't you join the chaos in playing games, spreading laughter, and most importantly, saving lives. More information will be available at distractionsmedia.com slash charity stream. We say this for all the children who will directly benefit from your support. Thank you. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 110, Exiled from Their Country. One aspect of the changes in Wales during the 14th century is that we have not really discussed in depth was how the clergy dealt with rapid changes, upheavals, deaths, general discrimination. In order to discuss the Welsh facts, we need to look at a wider changes that were happening to Christianity in Western Europe during this period to give us the context we need in order to understand what was happening. In the High Middle Ages, the church grew in size, power, and importantly, in financial wealth. This helped to finance massive building programs across the West as cathedrals rose like flowers in a field. Much of the wealth in the early going came from land holdings and the tithes collected from churchgoers. It is thought that up to one-third of land holdings in Western Europe were controlled by the church. Combine this with donations of parishioners, and you can see just how much power the church wielded and why kings, lords, and others were so eager to nab their share of the wealth at times. Obviously, in an era where landholding was worth more than cash, that would make it even more valuable. The churchgoers who gave their tithes did so because it linked their souls to a higher purpose and to the church itself. The church effectively made you feel very much like you would have a terrible afterlife if you did not give one-tenth of your earnings to them. That would then carry on the idea in future years with the concept of indulgence. Indulgences were tools to protect your ancestors and yourself from either hell or purgatory, kind of a middle ground between heaven or hell. They likely grew this concept as all of this came about in the Middle Ages, and the demand and need for wealth became so much more important. Indulgences are actually something of a later development, obviously. 
As the Vatican grew wealthy, its building programs became even more ambitious. In the mid-1300s, Notre Dame was finished in Paris after a 200-year-old building program. In England, Canterbury, the seat of the English church, was remodeled, and the building was then finished. Lincoln's Cathedral, a marvel of Gothic excess, was built during this period as well. In Wales, St. David was remodeled, and as the chantries and the colleges were added by John of Gaunt, who was a patron of the cathedral and son of Edward III. In the 13th century, the Flandaff Cathedral was built, and the last major portions were then completed in 1287. Bangor Cathedral, on the other hand, had been the spiritual home of Gwyneth going back to the post-Roman Britain. Sacked by King John, then again by his grandson Edward, it would take nearly a hundred years to recover fully, as the building was then rebuilt just in time for the Glendour Revolt. It is likely that social work done by the church in the midst of the Black Death, combined with so many worshippers dying, hurt them to some degree, and the building programs in the 14th century were slower than at any other point before or after for hundreds of years. The wealth of the church may have saved it from real disaster, but it is likely that it began to develop cracks which exploded over the years afterward. Conflicts between monarchs and their religious counterparts, which had always been a difficult relationship, were growing in strength. Popes were finding that strong monarchs like Edward and Llewellyn were not really often concerned about the church's position and rarely heeded their advice. Furthermore, some saw the power, wealth, and the sense of self-righteousness as something to envy and desire. Monarchs had not yet reached the tipping point, but they were willing to take a few liberties when needed with seizing land, killing a particularly annoying clergyman, or generally finding them to be a nuisance, which at times must be dealt with, either through exile or, as previously noted, through murder. England had always been a difficult place for the Pope to rein in. In one famous case, the Pope at the time failed to pull the English monarch back with his most deadly weapon, spiritual harm. Pope Innocent III placed the Kingdom of England under an interdict for six years between March 1208 and 1214. No one was allowed to attend Mass, receive extreme unction, or bury their deceased relatives in consecrated ground with any sort of religious ceremony. Only the baptism of infants and the confession of the dying were permitted. This state lasted for over six years until the interdict was eventually lifted on July 2, 1214, after King John refused to accept the Pope's appointee, Stephen Langton, as Archbishop of Canterbury. It was seen as a failure in part because few seemed to miss attending Mass and taking part in the normal events of Christian belief, a sign that all might not be right in English worship. By the mid-1300s, the power of the English crown meant that they were determining a number of things in who ran the bishoprics, both in England and specifically for our purposes in Wales. In St. David's, for example, from 1347 to 1496, only two Welshmen had held the seat of bishop. Thomas Ringstead was appointed as the only second non-Welsh bishop of Bangor, in 1357 by Innocent VI. Ringstead used his position to try and keep the bishop English by offering a £100 inheritance to the next bishop if they were not Welsh. 
Welsh clergymen believed that they were being discriminated against, as obviously they were, so much so that they felt that they'd have to go into exile to achieve higher status in the church, something that obviously stung for them and must have bred animosity amongst Welsh clergy. Many decried the need to go outside of Wales to find education and position, meaning their ability to climb the local clergy ladder was much smaller and much less likely to happen. Often, Welsh clergymen found themselves working elsewhere because of this. Now, for a moment, let's zoom out of Wales again and look at the changing fortunes of the Catholic Church during this period, and probably the first real challenge to its legitimacy in Western Europe for 300 years, one that reflects in the politics in Britain during the next over 100 years at least. In the 14th century, one aspect of religious and political life was the so-called Western Schism, a point when the Catholic Church broke into two camps following their own collective popes. These groups, one in Rome and one in Avignon, in the southeastern area of what is now France, there would eventually be a third one, but we're not going to get into that discussion. The Holy Roman Empire, a political mishmash of smaller kingdoms from Central Europe in what would now be considered Germany, Austria, Switzerland, parts of the Czech Republic, and northern Italy. They were centralized in a loose confederation under an emperor at the height of the power of the Pope in the 11th century. 300 years later, and after massive failures of the Crusades and the collapse of the Crusader kingdoms in the 13th century, had damaged the Pope's authority at the same point that strong monarchs were rising to meet them. The Church, which for most of the Middle Ages had been seen as the supreme power, was being challenged by political worlds as well as spiritual ones. The Holy Roman Empire, in particular, started to look at the Pope as an encumbrance upon their rightful leadership. Conflicts became more frequent as the Pope tried to toss their spiritual weight around in the political arena. The Pope was also a monarch who controlled his own country, known as the Papal States, in an area of Italy which basically went from Rome on the west coast along the northern and central area of modern Italy all the way to the northern and specifically the eastern coast. This area, which had been a part of the Holy Roman Empire, had gained its independence in the 12th century, allowing the Pope to claim political as well as a spiritual role in that area, at least. As a financially capable as the Pope might have been, their ability to win wars was something negated when fighting larger armies from larger countries. So they, like most Italian states at the time, began to tie their fortunes to larger nations and to mercenary groups. The French, for example, were key allies during the Italian wars in the 16th century. As the 14th century dawned, however, Rome was an unhappy place for the Pope. The King of France, Philip the Fair, had run afoul of Pope Boniface VIII, who supported by local French clergymen, had condemned the king. The French king, rather than heeding the calls to penance, thumbed his nose at the pope, throwing Bishop Bernard, one of his tormentors, into prison in the dispute. Boniface called for the king to appear before the pontiff, claiming that God had placed us over all kings and kingdoms, which goes to the heart of the conflict. Philip was fairly clear that this was not something he would tolerate, saying, Your venerable conceitedness may know that we are nobody's vassal in temporal matters. Translation, don't even bother. 
Boniface would die in 1304 under arrest of the King of France. So in other words, this got all turned around. A French positive Clement V instead rose to the papacy. Clement, like many of the popes in this century, would be dependent on the French cardinals for his accession to the papacy. This meant that he had to walk a tightrope, appeasing both the church and the monarch. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. He would also not move to Rome, but would rule from Avignon a change that would have massive consequences on the church at the time. Conflicts between the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire by the mid-14th century led to even more reliance on the French kings. Clement VI was a French by birth and had financed the French wars from his own personal finances, which must have been staggering based on that amount that they would have needed. The growing link between France and the papacy would create a church structure which was dependent on the French for support. The Pope, who had been the dominant ruler in spiritual and secular affairs in the High Middle Ages, had become a pawn in the political game of thrones. In 1369, Pope Urban VI would basically become the key financial backer of the French war with England. But Pope Gregory XI would return to Rome in 1377, as the Church was having trouble with the rule of the Papal States with the Pope in Burgundy instead of in Italy. The return of Gregory was short-lived, however, as he had died a year later. His successor, Urban VI, that we'd mentioned before, isolated himself from the French cardinals who had enjoyed unprecedented control over the papacy for 70 years. By angering them, he sent in motion the Western Schism, or the Second Great Schism, as 
these same cardinals voted for their own pope, Clement VII. Clement, like his predecessors, moved his seat back to Avignon and set in place the divided house of Christianity, Urban, supported by the Holy Roman Emperor, England, and many of the Italian states, and Clement, supported by France and their allies. The various conflicts which engaged England and France in the Hundred Years' War now included a spiritual warfare. In Wales, this would have consequences, as the Glyndor government would ally both with the French and its spiritual leadership in Avignon, while in Rome, England used their pope to push their own spiritual warfare. Strata Florida, once a Norman-funded monastery, is now become a place for the Welsh counterculture, in part because the life that had once drove many different monastic worships across Europe was slowly fading or changing, with no real united ideals and very few fresh ideas coming out of the church at this time. There were 13 Cistercian monasteries in Wales in 1380, but only 71 monks to run them. As mentioned before, faith was suffering from the collision of a divided belief matched with people who no longer held the same values, something that would take around a hundred years to change under the weight of excess, war, and schism. Welsh poets were expressing some of this anger and dissatisfaction with the order of the church, claiming that the poor would one day avenge themselves as they were the only true Christians, said Aiolo Gok or Aiolo the Red. In the midst of this change came a bigger challenge to orthodoxy. John Wycliffe, an Oxford religious scholar and thinker, began to question the church's stand on a number of issues, including things that would become familiar to later Protestants. He believed that the Bible is the supreme authority, that the clergy should hold no property, and that there should be no basis in doctrine of transubstantiation, all of which would go against the current medieval Catholic Orthodox thinking. His work in these areas would also include directing the creation of the first Bible in Middle English. This Bible would serve as the basis for the King James Version 200 years later. His idea in the late 14th century would coalesce around the Lullard movement, which took his concept and ran with them, creating many additional ideas that would again see more familiarity and more exposure as the Reformation kicked off a hundred years later. However, their reach in Wales itself was actually very limited. You can understand why, in part, because it was very English-centric in ideals, and as we said, in this period of time, as things were becoming an issue between Wales and England, one of the things that was happening was a move towards more of the French idea about the Pope and the French Pope himself. So, Lollardism, or Lollardly, as it's sometimes called, never really reached Wales in that period. But obviously that would change in ways as time went on. And certainly one can point to a lot of examples in that era that ideals were changing about the relationship between God and man and how the church would be the intercession between God and man in the mindset of the people. In Wales, as this would go along, we would see more and more developments where, as we said earlier, there would be a movement away from the monastic buildings and the monasts themselves. Uh, Strata Florida, of course, would be closed by Henry VIII in 1539, 
along with much of the rest of the church buildings that would be seized and much of them sold off. But this really was the beginning point for all of this. Much of the excess that was causing trouble, a lot of the high points of the church that had happened in the 1100s and the beginning of the 1200s really came home to roost because they failed in their goal of pushing the kings of Europe into a more unified, a more Roman-looking appearance, if you want to put it bluntly. And because of this, and because they couldn't seem to convince the ch those that followed them that they had their best interests in heart and were important figures for them to follow, this would create jealousy and desires for revenge. You can understand how monarchs looking at their power structure, looking at the amount of land they had that they could give to followers and to people loyal to them to make alliances are limited and hindered by, well, in the English case, by one, the parliament, but also by the church itself. So you can see how guys like Henry VIII would look at this and go, you know, this is a very convenient time for me to just take what I want because these guys don't need this wealth. You know, I have to fight wars. I have to do things. They're just spending it on churches. And in that mindset, you can see how this would kick off. The other thing you have is you have a lot of religious leaders across Western Europe who are now coming to the conclusion that the Catholic Church is broken and that the ideas that are coming out of the Middle Ages are processing in their minds and they're starting to look at what they're reading, comparing it to what they're hearing and what they're seeing, and they're starting to measure them and come to their own set of conclusions, one of which is, is maybe we don't need the church to be in charge of us. And all of this comes to a head, as I said, a hundred years later, but you can see the roots of this really, I think, happening at the end of the Crusades, but really develops almost a uh, avalanche-like structure after that, especially in this period where it just takes one protester, one person that they don't deal with to just create a rolling stone of momentum. And you go from having what seems to be one disgruntled priest to a movement. And I think that lesson becomes very ingrained in the Catholic experience and leads to the Counter-Reformation. It leads to... Uh, things like the Inquisitions and trying to stop the leakage of followers. Right in the midst of them spending tons and tons and tons of money, to be honest, because we haven't even reached the real excesses of the Catholic Church at this point. You know, the, the big spending in Rome comes 100 to 200 years later. I mean, it's the beginning of the Enlightenment when all of the really massive structures like St. Peter's Basilica gets built and all of those really famous paintings and famous statues and all those things that we that we all kind of know start to exist is even after this. So it's not like the church is down and out, but you can see how things are starting to crack, how things are starting to develop, and how Realizing that you want the Bible in your own language is suddenly becoming important to a literate 
people that aren't as hung up on Latin as the church still is. And if you're literate and you have no desire to speak Latin, no desire to read Latin, which at this point is the legal, spiritual, and pretty much day-to-day language written, then that changes things. And especially in wars where you're fighting other people who may write the same language, you may want to differentiate yourself. And one of those ways to do that is through language, is through the word usage you have. And so you'll see nation states starting to develop where loyalty to the people of that area, the culture of that area, becomes much more important than it was in the past. I I would argue this probably happens most at the end of the Hundred Years' War when you get that final ending of the English ability to take over parts of France and their inheritance of the English crown. It creates a separation and it teaches pretty much what was a Norman nobility that they need to start looking at their own people in England and kind of come to grips with the fact that they're never going to have their old land back. They're never going to take control of France again. So all of these things are combining and it's at this point, and we're going to get into this a bit more soon enough and probably in the next episode, is when this combination of weaker king in England, stronger opposition in the nobility in England, and one of the outliers is a Welsh nobleman who actually is supporting the King of England, who becomes disenfranchised and dispossessed and goes on the rampage and will begin to broach the question of Owen Glyndor in the next episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at welshhistorypod, or on Facebook at uh, Welsh History Podcast via Facebook.com. And uh, everyone have a good day, and I hope to see some of you out at our live stream. Bye! This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.